What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. And I'm so excited because today, today, I have Jessica Leahy as a guest, all right? And yeah, we're going to be talking about the gift of failure with children. Why, why our kids need to fail, why they need to be bad at stuff, how it helps them. Um, and we, we have a great discussion about, you know, uh, middle school, high school, college, growing up, being an adult, uh, when should kids give up and, uh, you know, when should they keep pushing forward and not give up and all these other things. So, uh, it's a great, great, great conversation. And her book, The Gift of Failure is just such an amazing book. But the other thing, the other thing is, uh, when I recorded this with Jessica and sent her the questions, she actually had a brand new book come out called The Addiction Inoculation. Both of these books will link, be linked down in the description below. But uh, Jessica, like myself, is in recovery as well. And The Addiction Inoculation, it's about, um, you know, helping kids navigating and, you know, educating us parents on how to talk to our kids about it, uh, what preventative methods work, which ones don't. She dives into a lot of the studies and the research. But yeah, both of these books are amazing. Make sure you check them both out. But anyways, before we get started, if you're not yet, make sure you are following uh, the podcast, whether it's on Apple or Spotify or subscribing. Uh, that really helps out with the algorithm. When it sees those numbers, it's like, oh, I guess people like this and it spreads the word. Um, but yeah, also if you leave a rating, if you review it, that helps too. And maybe the biggest help of all is you share this. You share this. Because I know, I know for a fact you're going to listen to this episode and you're going to think about some parents that you know, whether it's like friends that you have or like family members who have kids. And you're going to be like, you know what? They need to hear this, right? So make sure you share this episode over on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. Reddit, whatever whatever tickles your fancy, all right? But anyways, uh, yeah, I'm super excited for you all to hear this episode with Jessica Leahy discussing her book the gift of failure and without further ado here is our chat jessica thank you so so much for coming on the podcast to discuss your previous book. I know you got a new book out and hopefully we could reconnect and talk about the addiction inoculation. But today we're talking about the gift of failure and I loved, loved, loved this book so much. Like yourself, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I had numerous relapses and I, I personally didn't get sober until I realized that, you know, my quote unquote failures were legitimately like my best teachers. So yeah, uh, I just celebrated nine years sober. And, you know, as a parent, I try to teach my son about the gift of failure as well. So in, in your book, you start off um, with a chapter that's titled, How Failure Became a Dirty Word. So my first question for you about the book, um, in your opinion, why are some parents so afraid to let their children fail? And why don't they recognize how this isn't preparing them for, you know, a realistic life in the future? 
Hi, Chris, and thank you so much for your enthusiasm for my book. It really, it's, it means so much to me. I think as writers, we tend to get used to sitting in these rooms by ourselves, or as I am right now with three dogs and writing stuff, and it, it gets kind of separated from the people out there in the world. And so mm-hmm. it means a lot to me when well, something I've written means something to someone. So thank you so much. Um, so how failure became a dirty word. You know, there's a lot of factors that led to sort of where we got now. Part of that has to do with, you know, a history of, you know, now we're having children older after more uh, work experience, after more school experience. We're having fewer children. We're in a situation where um, from, from an economic standpoint, we can't expect our children to do better than we did. And that's new, actually, in American history. Um, and then we have a 24-7 media that, you know, tells us constantly about uh, all the doom and gloom. Our kids are never going to get into college. They um, tend to, the articles and news stories that we tend to hear are ones that outrage simply because um, news articles that outrage are more likely to be shared. So, you know, we tend to think of all of these dangers looming and the things that our kids have to do in order to be um, excel from, you know, be better than all the other kids, which sets our kids up to be in an adversarial relationship with their friends and their classmates. And we're no longer thinking about classrooms as a community. We're thinking about them as a place where our kid needs to be the best. So all of those things, plus just our normal emotional response to not wanting to see our kid frustrated you know when our kid gets frustrated in gift of failure I describe you know my kid couldn't tie his shoes he was nine years old and he couldn't tie shoes because it was too hard for me to see him feel stupid and and you know flop back and go boneless and be like I'm never ever gonna tie my shoes ever so it's not it's a normal emotional response to not wanting to see our kids suffer and you know there's an overlap here with um substance use prevention, which is that we're now in a place where we don't expect pain to be a part of our child's existence ever. Um, we can obliterate pain with very powerful medications. And so that's where how we got to a place where it's become normal for kids to be offered opiates after uh, wisdom teeth ex- tooth extraction. And it that doesn't need to be a normal part of it. Um, you know, having a little bit of pain here and there, being frustrated here and there. These are normal parts of childhood. And I think we need to sort of move our line in the sand about when we step in, when it's too much risk, when it's too much for our kids to handle. And just just start by just putting our toe over that line and letting our kids struggle for just a little bit longer. Um, You know, the other thing is that we've become... A lot of people have become overly directive parents where in in service to not seeing our kids struggle too much, we give them all of the instructions like as they're doing something. And the problem is, is that overly directive parents and overly controlling parents are more likely to have kids who can't feel frustrated, who can't push through frustration in, in order to sort of look at what they're doing from another angle. And in teaching what we know is that one of the more powerful tools we have to teach is something called desirable difficulties and it's if you think about who can sort of persist doing something that's slightly above their ability level slightly frustrating for them it's going to be kids who can wrestle a little bit with frustration and yet stick with it so 
when we overparent our kids, we're actually setting them up to be less able to learn, to be less innovative because they're less likely to respond to a challenge, an academic challenge, an intellectual challenge, an emotional challenge with innovation or creativity and more likely to just give up. And the research is really clear on that. Yeah, a- absolutely. And and I think the first thing, you know, that you, that you pointed out that's really important is that you know, we as parents, we don't want our kids to feel frustrated or feel dumb or anything like that. It's because we love, we because we care. So, like, I think you know, uh, it's it's important for us to kind of realize it's coming from a good place. Like, none of us want to set our our kids up for failure. But like you mentioned, we we need to understand, you know, how our culture has kind of evolved into this place where we, you know, we don't want to feel, you know, discomfort and we're afraid that, you know, our kids aren't going to get into the right college or not going to get a good job and da, 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 you know. And and something I've, I've been thinking about a lot lately, I don't know if it's because I've been reading books on just kind of like, you know, the quote unquote happiness industry and stuff like that. But something that really helped me out with my mental health and my recovery and everything is just kind of asking myself, like, where did this expectation come from that life, like this crazy thing called life is supposed to be easy and we're never supposed to face challenges or obstacles we're not supposed to have bad days and everything like that and you know once i personally figured that out i'm like hey you know there's going to be frustrations there's going to be bad days my mood isn't going to be 100 percent all the time and when when i sit back and really question it it's like isn't that kind of an unrealistic expectation that you know, any of us think that life is just supposed to be this like smooth sailing, you know, from childhood into adulthood. So that's kind of personally what I do with my son. And I understand that it's going to be frustrating and, you know, things are going to happen. And and like you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, with, with your son and tying his shoes and you have a lot of great stories in your book too, as not only, you know, as a teacher, but as a parent, right? And, you know, what I personally try to do is when I see my son stuck on something or anything like that, I try to walk him through like the thinking process and ask him questions like, why do you think this isn't working? Or where do you think we could turn to to find some solutions or strategies? And, you know, uh, I'm I'm a bit of a tech nerd. And, you know, from a young age, I taught him how to look up on YouTube fixes and everything like that. And now that's like his go to because I'm trying to make him a little bit more self sufficient. But yeah, like, trust me, trust me, when he gets frustrated or stuck, like I just want to jump in there and just (laughs) do it for him. But that's what I love about your book is that you remind us as parents, as teachers, as, you know, uncles or anybody who interacts with children or people, right? Like we have to let people work through that to build that, that resilience. Um, so, so yeah, so something else I wanted to discuss was, um, there's, there's a lot of research out there about internal versus external locus of control. And it really makes sense to me how people are genuinely happier when they believe that they are personally in control of their outcomes. But unfortunately, the world is not always the meritocracy that we're told it is or, or wish it was. And there are many results that are completely outside of our control. So what's, what's your recommendation for teaching kids about taking responsibility for their actions and for their efforts while also helping them understand and realize that they don't have 100% control over the outcomes. So one of the things that's really important to understand about internal locus of control, and and also I want to add to that, internal locus of 
figuring out whether something is of quality. So, you know, when your kid comes to you and is like, mommy, mommy, or daddy, daddy, what do you think of these pictures I drew? Um, our normal response is to say, oh my gosh, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I mean, I've done it a thousand times over. But one of the best things we could really do for our kids is every once in a while, just turn it back on them and say, so what do you think of it? Or, you know, are you proud of what you did? Did you have a good time doing it? How do you feel about the outcome? Um, that helps kids shift from needing exterior, um, you know, external uh approbation of what they do in order to, you know, make it so that they can actually look at their own work and figure out whether it's of any quality. But back to external versus external, internal versus external locus of control. One of the things that we know about learned helplessness, which is that state of, and by the way, learned means that someone is teaching it to them and it's often their parents. When a kid is um, I used to call it feigning helplessness, but it's really this learned helplessness where kids don't believe that they can do anything or at least feigning it so that they can get us to do it for them. The learned helplessness is actually a natural response in our brains. Um, there's some research uh, that Martin Seligman just did a wonderful meta study. Well, not just a couple of years ago, did a wonderful meta study on learned helplessness. And it turns out that going boneless, helpless, and in the face of something that's challenging or in terms of, or in the face of prolonged suffering or pain is, it's normal. This is a normal human response. But the way to uh, interrupt that is to give control back to the subject, whether that's a rat in a cage being tested, um, or that's us as humans. So when faced with feelings of helplessness, finding small wins for your kid or for you can give you back a sense of control and not just a sense of control but a sense of um, self-efficacy and one of the things I talk about in the addiction inoculation is that self-efficacy is a really important preventative measure for um, mitigating um, risk for kids for substance use disorder. It's also a really important function of how your kid moves through the world and, and how whether they feel like they have the ability to have hope because hope is thanks to Shane Lopez who wrote this wonderful book called Making Hope Happen. His definition of hope is that you can envision a better world, number one, and number two, that you can envision or that you feel that you have the power to make it so. And self-efficacy is that second part, but you know, that optimism or hope combined with self-efficacy, that's the magic formula for helping kids not only feel like they have more control over their world, but also that they are at lower risk for all kinds of negative outcomes, not just in terms of substance use disorder, but in terms of depression, in terms of anxiety, because when you have small wins, you feel more in control. When you feel like when I take an action, it will actually result in a control that can make my world and the world in general a better place. And that's really, really important. So help your child have some small wins. If the the big picture is too much, too big, too huge to get their arms around, then say, okay, well, this is your big goal. What are the smaller goals that you have to do in order to get to that bigger goal? There's a documentary I, I uh, recommend all the time. It's like 15 minutes long. It was made by REI, the outdoor company, and it's called um, Follow Through. And it follows a free skier named Caroline Gleick, full disclosure. She's a former student of mine. She's a mountaineer and free skier and sports model. And she um, 
wanted to ski all of the routes in the in the shooting gallery in the Wasatch Range in Utah. And she couldn't just go out and do that. It was too dangerous, too big, too just immense of a goal. She had to do a lot of small things in order to make that large goal happen. So in my classroom, um, especially in my um, drug and alcohol rehab classroom, I used to show that video and then have the kids come up with their biggest, most outrageous and audacious, humongous life goal, and then sit down and work on all of the small things, the action items they would have to do in order to get to that big goal and of course the first one is usually uh, get sober stay sober um but getting helping kids um, achieve those small wins is going to do a lot in order to get them some feelings of self-efficacy, some control over you know the world and that really does a lot to mitigate um, feelings of learned helplessness. I, I absolutely I, I love that Jessica and and that makes that makes total sense. Um, I, I forgot. I can't remember if you talked about it in this book or if I read it in another book, but I've heard, you know, I think I've actually heard a few times that one of the best things that we could do, especially with, you know, children, is to focus on the effort rather than the outcome, right? And that's that's something that I work on a lot, <laughs> you know? Uh, I, I try to be like, hey, you know, like, how, how hard did you try? How did, you know, what did you do? Or what can we do better next time? I've, I've really tried to, you know, instill in my son uh, because, yeah, he, you know, he, he wants to do great. He wants to get great grades and he does. But, you know, if he slacks, it gets like, you know, uh, upset, not slacks, but if he performs uh, less than what he expected of himself. And, you know, I try to remind him, I'm like, hey, hey. If you tried your best, if you did everything you needed to do, if you took all those small steps that you're kind of talking about, Jessica, if you did all those things, like, do you think that, like, we'd ever be upset with you? Like, any of us would be disappointed? And it's like, absolutely not. But, but yeah, I absolutely love what you're talking about, too, with taking these big goals, breaking them down, like, what do I need to do to reach that? And I think, you know, for anybody out there in recovery, you know, like us, like, that makes sense, too. Like, staying sober when when they when i first got sober and they were like oh you got to stay sober forever that that was insanity that was pure insanity to me but when they broke it down like hey no you just got to stay sober for today you just got to stay sober for an hour and i broke it down like that you know it it helped and i try to do that with bigger tasks you know whether it's launching this podcast or making youtube videos or you know doing my own uh writing i try to break it down into small tasks and i think it's good you know or great even to start teaching that to our kids to break it down and because i think i think too is is you start acquiring all these other skills and these resilience uh, along the way so even if that thing that big goal doesn't happen you've built up all this you know uh wisdom and knowledge and perseverance through the process that could be useful in other aspects of your life um but yeah so as i mentioned my son 12 years old He's awesome, self-driven, and recently Netflix uh, released a documentary um, about the college admission scandal we all know about, you know, with like the celebrities and uh, the, uh, what's her name from Full House? You know, you know who I'm talking about. But anyways, uh, I had my son uh, watch it with us for a better understanding of how the college system can be rigged for those with money. And in your book, you go through different stages of education, like middle school, as well as high school and beyond. So as a teacher and a parent, how do you personally reconcile teaching children 
work ethic and the gift of failure while also recognizing that there are some of these systemic issues. Have you ever encountered situations where a hardworking kid didn't get the results they deserved due to the way that the system is set up? So I have been through college admissions already with one kid, and we're about to go through it with another one. And um, my friends are just, we're all at that same place right now. Uh, one of my friend, one of my closest friends, her kid just decided on his school the other day. And she, especially in this year when COVID has gotten rid of a lot of testing um, requirements, it's been a really challenging year for a lot of kids. Um, a lot of kids specifically with privilege because a lot of kids who wouldn't normally apply given their test scores are suddenly applying and it's opening the doors for a lot of kids who wouldn't usually apply to colleges but are seeing this, you know, no testing as a, as a great opportunity for them to apply places they wouldn't normally apply. So the first thing that I would do is recommend that you get a grip on sort of as a parent, get a grip of your own hopes and dreams and wants in terms of replicating, you know, I want my kid to go to that college that I that would have been perfect for me that it never occurred to me to apply to or that college that I applied to and I didn't get into. What is it exactly? Is it, I mean, to be really blunt, is it that you want that sticker on the back of your car so that when you're in the grocery store parking lot in your town, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, Stanford or oh my gosh, Harvard or whatever. Um, one of the first things I did with my older son when he started looking at colleges was I picked one emblematic thing, no pun intended. I said, look, Ben, the one thing I will not do after this college search is over is put your choice of a college as a sticker on the back of my car. I don't get to take credit for that and I don't want your hopes and dreams for my happiness and pride and ability to boast to play a part in this incredibly important decision. The other thing we did was we got a book called Colleges That Change Lives, which is so much better than the U.S. News and World Report, because one of the things that the media has also done to parents is to tell them that kids are never going to be able to get in anywhere. The college church is impossible, and that's just not true. Um, it is really, really tough to get into about 50 to 70 colleges that are on the top of the U.S. News and World Report that have um, that have acceptance rates of lower than 30 percent. There are 2,700 accredited colleges and four-year colleges and universities, and that's not including the two-year in this country. There is so much to choose from, and just because it's at the top of the U.S. News and World Report list does not mean it's necessarily a good fit for your kid. So opening your eyes a little bit to what might be a good fit for your kid, being really clear about what your kid wants and not not just blurring the lines between what you want and what your kid wants and understanding that a fit for you might not be the best fit for your kid. And then on top of that, to get to the the guts of your real question, understand, help your kid understand, especially for my kids. I, I had to help them understand that we are, they are white boys from New England and they have had every privilege, they've had every support, and that there are going to be colleges that they're going to want to get into where um, there's going to be, you know, in some places they might have an easier time, but 
thank goodness now I think it's important for them to understand that it's time for a lot of people who have not had the opportunity to take advantage of, you know, a really, of a college education. It's time for some people to be able to do that. And so, you know, I think understanding, helping my kids understand that um, college admissions isn't just about them. And it's also not just about whether or not they are worthy to be accepted by a college. I think it's important for our kids to have a good fit. Um, There was one college we went to go visit and we got to the um we got to the college tour there were parents there with like sixth graders it was crazy insane and yes it was a very very high caliber college and um you know in terms of you know very low acceptance rates and we were just doing sort of a college tour and this one was there and so we went and you know we knew right away that it was a terrible fit for my kid and so we actually we didn't want to offend anyone so we kind of <laughs> peeled off and snuck off from the tour behind a building and ran back to to our car because we just knew that this college was was appealing to the people in the tour that were going to jump through every hoops to show that they were worthy as opposed to considering whether or not the college was actually right for their child and um, that was not something it just felt wrong so anyway um, have some really clear eyes about what your motivation is with the college that it is you want your child to get into and you know that was hard for me it was really hard for me um but one of the things i did is you know when we went around i said at the end of each tour i said so what is it what did you think and he couldn't you know he could give a response but then I would ask very probing questions. What is it that you liked about this? And you can't just say the fancy amenities or the beautiful new sparkling buildings. Um, And actually the college that my son ended up going to when we finished the tour, he said, um, I liked, I saw students all over the place talking to people I can only assume were professors and they seemed really calm and natural about it. And that's what I want. I want a school where it's normal for professors to just stop and talk to their students and offer mentorship. And that's what I really, really want. So that really, we were able to rule out a whole bunch of schools based on that. So it was a really great answer to the question of what is it, you know, that appeals to you about this school above and beyond, you know, the majors and all that other stuff. So I think the other important thing to remember is that, you know, competition is way through the roof for some of the um, for some of those top tier colleges. And this is not about your kid or your kid being rejected. When you think about the numbers, and I, I talk a lot to people in admissions, when you talk about the numbers, often a college admissions person has seconds to look at your child's, um, to assess your child. And that's ridiculous. It's just not, it's not a, a it's it's not a way to assess a human being and so keeping in mind that there are colleges that are looking for your particular child and help steal your steer your child toward those colleges and have some options open um and look at look at things you might not have considered like you know the honors college within your state college or you know i went to my uh my my public state university, University of Massachusetts, because for a bunch of reasons, for economic reasons, but also because I wanted to try a little bit of everything. And it allowed me to have a small major in which um, I was treated like an individual within a gigantic college um, that my parents could afford and that um, allowed me to leave college with no debt. So you know, start thinking a little bit outside the box. Go get the book, Colleges That Change Lives. Don't just think about the, the top 
60, 70 colleges in U.S. News and World Report and start getting real about what it is your kid wants to study and why and get your own ego out of the way. Yeah, I think that's that's so important. I was I was talking with somebody else the other day and uh, yeah, it's it's this this question around you know, what are what are our motivations? What are we why are we doing what we're doing? You know, I I lived a lot of my life trying to impress other people and it made me it made me miserable, right? And when I look at just mental health rates and everything like that. Everybody has their own, you know, reasons and theories like, oh, why, you know, so many people are depressed or anxious or whatever it is. But personally, I think one of the the main factors is that we are trying to live our life in a way to impress other people, whether it's, you know, our peers or our parents or whatever it is. And what I personally learned is, you know, it, that's that's a bad way to live because, once you do that thing, there's no guarantee that you're going to, A, make them feel the way you're hoping they feel, or B, it's going to f make you feel whatever you think that you're going to feel, right? So going to that college or whatever, you know, to impress your parents. And, you know, personally, that's that's one of the reasons I did. I was, uh, you know, I come from a, a family of alcoholics and addicts and everything like that, and uh, I remember graduating high school and they're like, oh, Chris, you, you got to be the first one to go to college and all this. And I and I did. And I saw that it wasn't what I expected, um, that feeling of people being proud of me and whatever. But I love how you 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 had this conversation with your son about, like, what are you looking for? What do you want? And all this other stuff, because, yeah, especially because college can be so expensive. It breaks my heart just knowing that. You know, uh, uh, kids will go to school and major in something and not really understand, you know, uh, whether that'll lead to a, a promising career or a career they're li they'll like or, you know, whatever whatever that is. You know what I mean? Um, and, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of thought. And <laughs> uh, I, I think the way you said it is great. And these are conversations I'm trying to have my son, uh, even though he's 12, he has six more years until he graduates. But I want him to kind of start thinking about this stuff. Um, but yeah, so so in the book, I really love this one chapter you had uh, about this, this kind of parent-teacher partnerships. So with with you being an educator, what are some of the biggest challenges that, that you face with parents? And what do you wish more parents understood about their child's education as well as how they could better partner with teachers. So parents. Um, so it's been a while. I have full full disclosure. It's been a while since I've had to really deal with parents because for the last five years of my teaching career, and I haven't taught now for um, th three years, two years, three years, um, I dealt with no parents because I was teaching at an inpatient rehab for adolescents. So however, I have spent a lot of time uh, teaching every grade from six to 12 and in both, both hoity-toity public schools, or uh, private schools and public schools, both, both hoity and very not unhoity. Um, and it's really, it, it, what's really interesting is every single place I go also as a speaker, um, administrators say to me, yeah, I know you do a lot of speaking all over the place, but you would not believe the pressure here. The pressure here is just unlike anything you've ever seen. And I'm not talking about like DC, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, while that's true in those places. I'm also talking about, you know, 
outside Indianapolis and outside Kansas City and, you know, it exists everywhere. And so I think understanding that, you know, we are kind of our own worst enemy, meaning parents, um, we tend to, you know, really rile ourselves up. I wrote an, an article for The Atlantic called Why Back to School Night Made Me Feel Like a Bad Parent. You know, that's about parents competing with other parents and really riling them up. And so one of the things we have to do when we think about parent-teacher relationships and homes is to think of them more as homeschool relationships, not just parent-teacher relationships. Because from a fairly early age, you need to start as a parent getting out of the kid's way and letting the child be the um, conduit between homeschool communication. And yes, it is going to be frustrating at first because, you know, kids don't have full-on executive function. And by the time your kid gets to middle school, really, they should be the main source, the main conduit of information between home and school. And I understand that it's really tempting to log on that portal and check it, you know, a thousand times a day. But as someone who has never checked the portal as a parent, I think it's really important to remember that what the portal does, especially when it is um, being released by schools without any training or any guidance as to how to use it in a healthy way, it's putting the onus on parents and saying to parents, you know, you are in charge of all homeschool communication. Here's the ID and username. Um, And that's just a real disservice to parents because that shouldn't be the case. Um, If you uh, get heebie-jeebies about never checking it, they're in gift of failure. There's a whole bunch of guidance about how to wean yourself off of it or how to make it productive for you and your kid to sort of check the portal on a regular basis. But one of the important things I advise parents to do, and one of the things I have continued to do is, when I know who my kids' teachers are going to be, I just send them all a note. And I say, hi, so I'm Finn's mom, I'm Ben's mom, and I will not be using the portal this year, mainly because I, I would like to promote sort of communication between myself and my kid, and my, my kid and you. And I don't want to be um, undermining that by having him worry that I'm checking all the time. Um, and one of the the dark side of the portal is that what's happened now is sometimes parents are finding out about grades before kids are. And um, I had this happen. uh, I I was talking with a kid who um, in real time this happened and it turns out that the grade was wrong. And this kid was freaking out because his parent was texting him about, you know, how livid she was about this grade. And it turns out it just wasn't a real grade. It was a mistake, but he had no time to go talk to his teacher and work that out as, you know, a big kid um, with his, with his teacher before the parent pick up that afternoon. And um, anyway, so having a a way that works for you and your kid. um, And again, there's there's guidance about this in Gift of Failure, ways to use the portal that are healthy and um, do not undermine communication. But go to the teacher and say, look, I'm not going to be using the portal or I will be using the portal very little. I would like to make this so that my son or my daughter begins to understand that um, it's his or her um, or their responsibility to be in communication with their teacher not mine. Um, And therefore, if something really starts to circle the drain, here's the best way to get in touch with me. But otherwise, I would like you to communicate primarily with my child. And then if you feel like you need to level up to the next uh, to the next level, then definitely come to me. But um, I would love for you to problem solve with my child and not with me. And that not only gives um, a signal to the teacher that they are trusted, but that um, they are seen as in partnership with the family. And so homeschool communication is the way to go. Encourage your school to do um, 
student-led parent-teacher conferences as opposed to parent-teacher conferences without the kid. I would never dream of going to a parent-teacher conference without my kid, no matter how young they are, because it's really important to help your kid understand, um, you know, even if the school doesn't offer parent, uh, parent, child, teacher, student-led parent-teacher conferences, I would still insist on my child being there because it's really important for your kid to be a part of the problem solving and not some pawn that is used um, between the two, between the parent and the, and the teacher. So get your kids involved, get your kids involved in problem solving, use the portal in a way that's intelligent and not, um, not just out of a feeling of desperation and fear. Oh man. Oh, I, I forgot about, uh, I forgot about these portals. Uh, yeah. When my, when my son, you know, he first started out in, uh, elementary school and you know, uh, uh, his mom gave me like all these logins and the apps and everything. And you know, I'm a, I'm a tech savvy nerd and you know, and all that, but I'm like, this is, this is nuts. And it's, it's cool. It's cool because I enjoy technology and innovation and everything like that. But like you said, and this kind of makes me feel better, uh, you know, people can get hooked on it and we develop these habits of just checking and checking and checking. But I think you bring up an excellent point about the, the kind of communication aspect and everything. And I, I love that suggestion of just like reaching out to the teacher and being like, yo, uh, you know, here's how to communicate with me if you actually, if you absolutely need to. But other than that, we're going to use, you know, the child as a conduit of information. And, you know, personally, personally for me, something I try to remember with my son all the time, all the time is that what drove me nuts growing up was, you know, as kids, we all want to be treated older than we are, but, but just, just not being treated like I was even semi an adult, you know, I understand they couldn't, you know, trust me to, uh, you know, do all the adult things. But I think what, what you're saying is, is, you know, getting kids involved in these parent teacher conferences and stuff like that, because they, they need to be part of the problem solving. And that's something I try to implement with my son. Um, and I've, and I've tried to for, for years because I want him to get this kind of real world experience. You know, uh, I want him to get better at problem solving and seeing uh, different situations and seeing just how we interact with different people and, you know, just so many different things. So I'm really glad that you, you brought that, that up and getting, you know, getting the children involved. And, you know, uh, it's, it's been really cool too because his mom is a bit like more, overprotective and all up in his schoolwork than I am. And my kid's been just amazing all this time. But as time went on, I could see her kind of dialing back too. And, you know, the one thing that I'll say is I think, I think a lot of it is developing that, that trust with your child as well. Like my son is very accountable to himself. So we don't got to be on him all the time. Like when he gets homework, I, I, I can trust that he's going to do it and I don't have to remind him and which is a bajillion times better than any way I acted, you know, growing up, uh, you know, I, not only did my parents not know about the schoolwork I had, but they didn't, uh, you know, when it was due or anything and I would procrastinate and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, he, I, sometimes I wonder whose kid he is cause he gets, he gets ahead of these things, but, but I think it's, it's been this kind of, you know, uh, instilling trust in him over the years. And I think he knows he's, he's learned over the years that if, you know, he, 
he loses our trust in whatever way it is, whether it's like doing his chores, doing his homework or, you know, acting up at school or whatever it is, then, you know, then we're going to reevaluate and, uh, and adjust because he's lost some of our trust. You know what I mean? So he gets that freedom as the, the trust grows so he could be, uh, you know, more self-sufficient and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, so uh, one of the last questions I have for you, and there's there's a lot, there's a lot in here, Jessica. So, um, but yeah, I was thinking. So a while back, I I taught my son about some studies I learned um, from this book. I can't remember which one it was, but it was uh, this book on the psychology of luck. I got really into success versus luck and meritocracy and all that kind of stuff. And I told him about one study where they showed that people who considered themselves, you know, quote unquote lucky, just didn't give up as quickly as others, right? And I think that's extremely important when we're talking about your book, The Gift of Failure and all that. Like you got to keep trying and going and trying to go. And, but yeah, I, I'm kind of blown away because some, sometimes like with your kids, like something just really just sticks. And, you know, with my son, he really enjoyed uh, this study and um, he thought it was really cool because he, you know, he plays video games and stuff and he'll go back and keep trying and all that stuff. But anyways, when I'm, when I'm kind of thinking about this and, you know, thinking about other children and even, even my son, right? Um, at a certain point, it seems like all of us, whether it's children or even adults, we also need to kind of balance and look at the sunk cost fallacy, right? And we have to realize at some point we need to cut our life, our losses. Like we can't just keep trying at this thing that, that isn't going to work. So based on your experience, as well as the research, what are some signs that someone should just accept failure, give up and move on, right? Like that's something I think about all the time when it comes to my son. Like at what point is it like, hey, hey, maybe it's time to just let go of this goal or this project or whatever it is. Um, you know, for example, I'm a huge fan of Carol Dweck's growth mindset work, but at what point should a kid just realize that, you know, um, something is only going to improve so much? You know what I mean? I love this question about luck because it turns out that not it, it optimism is another really important part of this. And actually, when you if you want to read a really interesting book about the effect of believing in luck, you should read um, Mary, uh, sorry, Maria Konnikova's book. Oh, and it just slipped at her one about poker. Um, I'll think of it in just a second um, because her book about poker is really about mastery. Um, Poker is a really interesting analogy for attempting to get some control over luck in your life. Um, the Biggest Bluff, that's the name of the book. Um, because Maria, what Maria found is that there's a lot of um, mastery involved and a lot of optimism involved and a lot of psychology involved in mastering luck. And I love that book for that reason. But there's some fantastic books about optimism as well, not the optimism bias, but also Martin Seligman has a book on the optimistic child. Um, I recommend, uh, you know, Shane Lopez's book, uh, Making Hope Happen, because hope, optimism, um, all of these things feed into a sense of self-efficacy. They feed into a sense of that a kid can can self-advocate. They're a part of inoculation theory, which is a big part of my book, um, uh, The Addiction Inoculation, which is helping prevent substance use in kids, um, helping kids feel like they have the ability 
to say no in a way that saves face, that allows them to have control over the um, the exchange about whether or not they have a drink or whether or not they engage in sex before they're ready or whether or not they get in the car with the drunk driver. Um, the inoculation theory is really powerful and, and that really feeds back into the idea of self-efficacy, hope, luck, um, all of that sort of stuff. So I love this question of luck and I think I... I think the other thing we need to think about is that as girls and boys have slightly, and this is a vague, no, sorry, this is a vast overgeneralization, but there's research that shows that boys are a little bit better at saying, oh, you know, I screwed that thing up, that test over there. I'm fine. I'm still cool. But that test over there, that was a failure. Um, Whereas girls are a little more likely to look at that test that they failed and say, I am a failure. And the problem with that, that they own that failure as part of their own persona, their own self-worth. The other problem is that they're less likely to look at evidence of their own success and internalize that. They're more likely to say, oh, I got lucky. The timing was good. I had a good lab partner. The teacher just likes me, that kind of stuff. So especially with girls, I think it's going to be really important for them to stop pawning things off on luck. And while there is, you know, there's so much luck and chance involved in this world, whether or not you're born white or you're born black, whether or not you're you're born rich or born poor, whether or not you're born into, you know, a, a fam, a full intact family with sub- two supportive parents. There's so much chance involved in this world. But the problem is, is that um, talking a lot about how chance impacts children's outcomes lends itself to thinking a little bit more and uh, about helplessness and feeling helpless. The more we can help kids understand that, um, luck is what you make of it, that um, one of my best friends talks to me about the fact that, you know, The Gift of Failure, my first book, you know, sold at auction um, with 14 publishers bidding on it because uh, an article went viral. And I'm so, I tend to talk about that as luck. But the problem is, is that my friend says, you know what, yes, there was some good timing involved in that, but you had a body of work sitting there that you had worked really hard at. You'd gotten really, um, you were really intent on mastering the skill of writing and becoming a journalist. And so when that chance thing, that streak of, you know, lightning in a bottle thing happened, you were ready. So let's help kids understand that, yes, there is a fair amount of chance involved, but that chance is often going to be a matter of timing and preparation, timing mixed with preparation preparation. And um, so be ready when those moments of chance happen. And um, so just throwing your hands up and saying it's just all about luck, I think feeds learned helplessness. And so we need to um, be really careful about that. I love it. I love it so, so much, Jessica. And, and and I couldn't agree more. And that's that's something interesting, too, that you bring it up. I, I start self-reflecting and think about, you know, uh, the same thing with myself. I'm like, oh, I just I, I just got lucky. And uh, that's interesting. I, I haven't heard about that research between, you know, uh, kind of like that general uh, young boys versus young girls and, you know, and things like that and how we attach it to our identity, right? And... I love, I love that just, you know, that example of, you know, your, your book and your friend pointing that out to you there, there's like this cliche saying in like the entrepreneurial world or sales world or something like that, where it's like luck is, what is it like luck is, you know, being uh, opportunity plus, you know, being prepared. And I've actually been thinking about that a lot just personally with this whole podcast that I'm starting, right? Like I, 
uh, my, I'll put it this way. My dad, my dad actually, like one of the best lessons he ever taught me as a, as a kid was, if you don't ask, the answer is no, right? And another thing I, I learned about in one of those books on like the psychology of luck is, you know, it's, it's a numbers game, right? So the more you reach out and stuff like that, the more chances you have to, you know, potentially quote unquote win. And with this podcast, for example, I am just, you know, since I read so many books I, and I'm just constantly reaching out to authors, like there are dozens, there are so many authors who never get back to me, but I also have a, a, a backlog. <laughs> I have a backlog of, um, you know, authors uh, who are scheduled uh, like this upcoming week. I'm, I'm doing five days, five episodes in a row just to, you know, uh, kind of like, put in, in a category because I have so many people get back to me, but it's because I keep trying and I keep pushing forward and everything like that. But um, also to, to uh, you know, your what you just said about, you know, being prepared and like this body of work that you have and everything like that is kind of like what we discussed earlier is when we look at failure and even for our children, when you, when you try something and when you move forward and when you don't give up and, you know, when you experience some of this failure, you're learning and you're gaining experience and you're gaining knowledge and wisdom and everything like that. So even though this specific situation didn't work out, maybe something will work out in the future because of the skills you gained from, you know, just giving that thing a try, whatever it is, right? Like even if it's filling out college applications or job applications when they get older, the more you you apply for colleges or jobs or whatever, the better you get at filling out these applications and you can kind of learn and everything like that. Um, but yeah, but yeah, anyways, I interrupted you. So second part of the question, when should, people or kids just learn to give up? You know, you ask, when should kids just quit and give up and move on? And at what point, you know, does a kid realize that it's just something they're not seeing improvement? I love this question because I think as parents, we tend to get really, uh, we tend to, <laughs> I hear this all the time. When a kid says, to, one of the things that happens when I speak at a school is I ask, I give all the kids my um, email address and I tell them to email me and tell me what they would like me to tell their parents that evening. And a, a good number of them will tell me, please tell my parents that it's okay for me to quit whatever thing they've been doing since they were in kindergarten that they're just not in love with anymore. And parents' response is often, but we have so much invested. She just needs to stick with it for three more years and it'll look great on her transcript kind of thing. Or maybe she'll be able to play, you know, soccer in college or whatever. Uh, the return on investment thing just mystifies me because every time your kid is off doing something they hate, they are not doing something that could be the potential thing that they fall in love with. So with my youngest kid in particular, um, we tried a little of everything. He's tried uh, metalworking. He did, he worked um, welding, working, learning how to use a plasma cutter. He, um, he was a kid who really, when he was really young, hated music. And so I sort of put music off the table, like it really upset him. He didn't, music did not work for him at all. We couldn't play it in the car. He was very sensitive to sounds. And so I just thought, okay, well, music is off the table. He's going to hate it. Whereas my older son, you know, played saxophone and, and speaking of music that really irritated my younger son. So I sort of had music off the table, but through having free time in his schedule, he was able to start playing with lots of things that he found interesting and listening to lots of different kinds of music. And now, actually, he's obsessed with digital music production. And I can hear him upstairs in his room right now. He's um, 
practicing one of the six instruments he has upstairs in his room. And this has, you know, we support him in that. And obviously, if he wants an instrument to try out, I'm like, yes, let's go rent that now. But I've also found that when I'm too quick to jump on that and make it mine or make it something that I have a big part of or I start suggesting types of music that he should try, it gets my parents stink all over it and he tends to pull back. So my answer to, you know, when is it okay to quit? Well, that's going to depend on your family. If your family, for example... And this is the story I often use for this. Um, when my older son was young, I heard all the research about how if your kid plays a musical instrument, then it can help their math and their analytical quantitative thinking, blah, blah, blah. So we rolled the piano down from our neighbor's house because they were done with it. And we rolled it downhill to our house. And my older kids started piano lessons. And we had a honeymoon phase of, I don't know, maybe a week and a half. And after that, it very quickly became something that we argued about about the practicing. And um, we got to a certain point where it was just not something I was willing, I was not willing to risk our relationship in exchange for practicing piano, something that probably given our priorities as a family was not going to be a major part of his life. There was just no joy in it for him yet. So um, we rolled the piano. I we, I finally asked him, I said, you know, is it is it time? Do you really want to quit? Or I said, I think at first I said, can you stick with it for one season? Because seasons tend to be the periods during which, um, go read like Charles Duhigg's uh, book about habits. Um, that tends to be the period during which it takes us about a season to build habits. So he stuck with it for a season and then he was free to quit. And uh, and we, we rolled the piano down the hill to the neighbor's house and those suckers had the piano. So what ended up happening was a couple of years later, he had at least a little bit of basis from that, you know, in reading music from that one season of piano playing. And he um, picked up my husband's guitar and started playing it and just fell in love with it. And uh, after about a year of playing guitar, he said rather sheepishly, you know, if someone on our town listserv was selling a keyboard, I might be interested in picking that up. And when we found a used keyboard on our town's listserv for very little money, he became obsessed. He just, he practiced until I just couldn't believe how hard he practiced because it was completely under his own steam. And that came down to, the quitting piano came down to our family priorities. If our family priorities were very much about music, it might have been different. A friend of mine uh, who I really respect and adore, the rule in her family is you will play a musical instrument. We don't care what instrument it is. You can change every month if you want, but until you are done with high school, you will play some musical instrument. But within those parameters, you have choice. And obviously, kids are more likely to stick with one that once they've started, but you know that's up to them. Giving kids choice is really, really important. Realizing that if you're making your child do something that is joyless for them just because you have a lot invested, that's a lot of other things they're not trying, whether that's stained glass window making or metal working or jewelry making or glass blowing or some other sport. Um, give your kids time. Uh, you know, take the opportunity to maybe you know, make some room in their schedule for downtime, for idle time and see what they discover. Um, and, you know, you can make tech rules around that idle time that, you know, will let you quit this, but you can't replace it with video game time or online time. Um, and if that's a bargain they're willing to make, then great, let them do that. I think it's really important. Childhood is, should be a time of experimentation. Um, even as kids get older, you know, one of the things we need to guide adolescents toward is positive 
um, outlets for for risk and seeking novelty and trying something new is a great way to give kids uh, adolescents that that thing they need so much which is seeking out of uh, or finding novelty finding risk um, so push them towards some positive risk trying something new and I wholeheartedly believe that once your kid has committed a season and maybe you know for in in service to establishing habit or not letting their teammates down or whatever it is let them try something else yes absolutely that that's great and i think that's a great way to end and i i it just reminds me to just when my son was younger and there were so many things that i wanted him to do like i knew like if we start him young if we start him young he'll be amazing at this instrument or he'll be amazing at this sport and all these things right and over time i had to learn to back off and now it's just about experimentation and you know uh, having time like you mentioned for for novelty and just seeing what you like and there are certain things and hobbies that he's come back to and he goes through phases and stuff like that but you know i just want him to you know have that curiosity and try new things and he's he's great about that if he was just stuck on one thing forever you know i'd be like hey why don't we try some other things and sometimes it's me introducing him to you know some of my hobbies or you know whatever it is because I don't know. I, at the end of the day, I just think, you know, when when he gets older, I want him to just kind of have a variety of experiences. So when he's, you know, looking for uh, for going to college or, you know, seeking a job or even what, what he wants to do after high school, if he wants to take a little gap year or something like that, he has these experiences to look back on, see what he likes and, you know, uh, is curious about and kind of move on from there. But anyways, anyways, thank you so, so much, Jessica, for coming on the podcast to discuss your book the gift of failure and everybody everybody listening out there jessica is this amazing amazing woman and she has a brand new book as well called the addiction inoculation which i just finished reading and uh i, I i'm hoping jessica will come back so we can talk about that one because that is a huge huge passion of mine as well uh as many of you know i just celebrated nine years sober uh addiction runs in my family and i am worried that my son you know uh when it gets to that time of experimenting and everything like that that you know he has the addiction gene so make sure you check out her book the addiction inoculation and yeah if you get her book now by the time she comes back to talk about it, then you'll uh, already have read the book. And uh, yeah, you'll be more familiar with the questions and answers and everything like that. So yeah, make sure you check out the description down below. I have a link to Jessica over on Twitter. She, uh, you know, she, she shares studies and research and uh, she... Uh, shares articles and so many cool things so make sure you're following her over on Twitter both of her books are linked down below so make sure that you check those out but yeah that's all we have for this episode and in case you're not following me over on social media make sure you are my links are down there too at the rewired soul over on Twitter and Instagram next week is going to be uh, uh, an amazing week I'm doing five straight episodes Monday through Friday I have phenomenal guests and you know the the overall topic of the week is going to be scientific thinking and having healthy conflict right like we we need to be able to share ideas and everything like that and that's something that uh jessica talks quite a bit about in her book the gift of failure it's building this resilience and being able to have difficult conversations and being able to accept when you're wrong and screw up and you know and all these other things but you know especially in the climate that we have today where it's really difficult for people to have conversations and share different ideas and opinion opinions and you know, people on different sides of moral spectrums and all that. Uh, we have a lot of great 
conversations coming up next week with some amazing, amazing, amazing authors. So make sure that you stay tuned. But yeah, anyways, thank you so much for listening uh, to this episode with Jessica Leahy. Make sure you check out the description down below. Uh, there are also some links down there if you want to help support the podcast in any way, whether it's on Patreon or getting some of the books that I've written over at TheRewiredSoul.com. Or if you're like me and, uh, yeah, you like improving your mental health, there is also an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy, which is a service I have personally used and I absolutely love it. Check that out down below. But anyways, anyways, I hope you all have an amazing, fantastic rest of your day. All right. And make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul and stay tuned because we have an exciting week coming up.